It's really, really good to be here. Holly and the kids and I have been visiting with you for a couple of weeks, and so it's really good. Thank you for trusting me with this time in the Word with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, if you want to look there in your Bible slash phone slash iPad thing that you've got there. Uh, Acts chapter 8, just like if you were in Sunday school this morning. So we, we could probably talk for a long, long time about the ways that the pandemic has affected your, your family life, your home life. Um, one of the ways that has particularly impacted ours is that we have played a lot more family games together. I don't know if this has impacted you, but we've played a lot more family games together. Not that we needed more excuses to play um, this game that I have in my hand. This is Uno. I don't know if anybody is yeah. familiar with Uno. Um, not that we needed more time or more excuses to play more Uno, but the pandemic has allowed us to play a lot of Uno together, um, which, lead, which led us to look for possible uh, variations of the game. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there is another kind of Uno called Flipside Uno. Um, so if you're, if you're familiar with Flipside Uno, you've got the red two, and you've got the, what is this, the, the, is that a six or a nine? It's, that's right. That's right. Good. That tricks the five-year-old sometimes. You've got to be careful. The, the three, you know, you've got the normal Uno cards that you do to typical Uno. But sometimes when you're, when you're looking at your normal cards, you'll get one of these in Flipside Uno, which says that you need to flip to the other side. Not just that card, but all of your cards. So you may think you've got a red two or a yellow six or whatever it is, but when you get the flip side, everybody turns their cards around and what you thought was a red two was actually a draw five purple, right? So it changes the whole dynamic of the game. Um, it, it, so whatever you think you've got, there's another side to the whole experience and, uh, and, and it's, it's, really, it's really, really fun. So if you read through the book of Acts, and you start in chapter 1, 2, 3, and you work your way all the way to chapter 8. I think that is what Luke is doing, the author of the book of Acts, with Acts chapter 8. This is where the story of the church flips sides. And so I want you to have that mentality as we look through Acts chapter 8. So we're going to read verses 1 through 4 together. So if you want to stand with me in honor of God's word, Acts 8, 1 through 4. We'll look at the whole chapter in our message, but let's read together Acts 8, 1 through 4. Saul agreed with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house and drag off men and women and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. This is the word of the Lord. I think you could be seated. All right, so let's take a look at this text. So Thinking about all of chapter 8, let's go back into the beginning of Acts and kind of make sure we understand we have a big picture here. So 
if you read Acts 1 and Acts 2 and you keep kind of working your way through, you're, you get a really rosy picture for what it means to be a part of the church, right? I mean, you've got the, the Holy Spirit has come in power and you've got thousands of people coming to the faith. And at the very end of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it's like the perfect church. You've got people devoted to the apostles' teaching. You've got good fellowship together. You've got breaking of bread. You've got prayer Everybody's filled with awe. There are wonders and their signs being performed by the apostles. Everybody's together. They're holding all things in common. They're selling their possessions and their property and they're giving it to the poor. Every day they devoted themselves to the meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. They're enjoying one another. They have the favor of all the people. The Lord is adding to their number daily. So bringing more people in isn't changing the spirit of what's going on in the church. It's really, really great. Not that there weren't hiccups. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Go back and read them. There there are plenty of little hiccups. There's dissension over favoritism in Acts chapter 6. There's a guy named Stephen who preaches the gospel so fiercely and so profoundly with such great conviction in chapter 7 that he's killed for it as we just read about in chapter 8 verse 1. So there's this beautiful picture of what it's, how easy and how wonderful and how glorious it is to be a part of the church. And then in chapter 6 and chapter 7, real life starts to kick in. There is a shift in the narrative. So when we come to the end of chapter 7, the shift of momentum is taking place where the people have been enjoying all the favor of all the people in chapter 2. And now in verse 7, there's a public execution of those same people. So you have to wonder, what's the, Lord, what's the Lord doing in the life of the church? And so what I think Luke is doing in chapter 8 is he is playing a flip card in his, in his narrative of the book of Acts. And he's going to show us the flip side of life in the gospel. And I want to show you four of these flips through the text. So first with look with me in verse 1 through 3. The first flip that I want to show you is that of persecution to multiplication. Persecution, flip the card, and you have multiplication. Look at 8, 1 through 3. Saul agreed with putting him to death, that's Stephen, and on that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church, and he would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and he would put them in prison. So before we flip this card, I want to make sure we understand the weight of this persecution that's taking place in the church. There was, as you see in verse 2, they are mourning deeply, mourning deeply over the loss of a beloved brother and church leader in Stephen. Now, mourning looks a little different in our Western American culture, but in this day, that kind of mourning was a sincere and long and deep and emotional process that was on public display. And it, um, so it's, it's, It is a a weighty and hard moment just with Stephen's death. But the passage says in verse 1, on that day a severe uh, persecution broke out. Underline that word severe. The Greek word there is mega. So if you've watched that really terrible shark movie called The Meg, right? How big is that shark? 
It's really massive, right? Right. That's the Greek word there. I want you to understand. This is a severe, it's a wide-scale persecution. It's, it's taking place all through the church, all over Jerusalem, and they are forced to scatter out. And it's not just widespread. The passage says that Paul was ravaging the church. It's not just severe in the sense that it's widespread. It is severe in that it's intense and it's hard. That word ravaging there is an agricultural term. It's really cool. So I want you to imagine that you're, you know, like many people are, you have some sort of agricultural aspect to your life back in Jesus' day. And this word is the one you would use to, if, a, if, a, uh, if a boar came into your fields and just went crazy, right? So one of the times we, we vacation in uh, Western Mountains, North Carolina as a family from time to time, and there are black bears everywhere, right? Everywhere. Just go to YouTube and Google, black bear gets into vehicle. And you can imagine what a bear would do to the inside of your car if it got in there looking for food and it got locked in, which, is, which happens quite a bit if YouTube is any example. Okay. So that's what, that's what Luke wants you to understand about this persecution. Okay. It's everywhere, and it is destroying the fabric of life in the church. Men and women being put into prison over it. So it's methodical. It's indiscriminate. It is heavy, it's real, it's significant. But even that type of persecution has a flip side. Look at verse 4, here's the flip. Luke says, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. See that word so? The Greek there means logically, as you'd expect... In other words, that, that what Luke is trying to tell you is that the most natural consequence of persecution isn't the end of preaching, but the multiplication of preaching. Right? See the word scattered? That's also an agricultural term. This is what the word you would use. It's the word Jesus used in his parable, the scattering of the seed. It's exactly what took place. You can, can you visualize it? Dipping your hand in the seed and just chunking it and chunking it, and chunking it. It's exactly what happened with the preaching as the people logically, as a result of persecution of preaching the word, they logically kept on preaching the word everywhere they went. So you see the flip side of persecution is multiplication. The flip side of persecution is multiplication. Persecution's intent is to mar the church, but the way the Lord uses it is to multiply the church. Persecution is meant to sabotage the church, but in essence, it spreads the church. That's what the Lord is doing, and it keeps going. Look at verses 5 through 8. So we have persecution to multiplication, and here we have exclusion flipping to inclusion. Exclusion flips to inclusion. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah to them. So if Saul, who we read about right there in verse 1 of chapter 8, if Saul was the poster child for persecution, what you're going to see in the rest of chapter 8 is that Philip is the poster child for distribution. Because you read about Philip in chapter 6. Philip was a part of that task force that was formed to help when the widows, when there's disagreement about the Hellenist widows and the Jewish widows and how they were getting their food and who gets in line first and blah, 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 all that stuff. So you have this widespread panic ensue, and Stephen gets stoned. Philip transitions out of his role 
from distribution of food to evangelizing, to distributing the gospel. And he travels up your map, but down in elevation to a city nearby Samaria, in this, in this area called Samaria. Now, double down on that word Samaria in your Bible, because as far as Jews, like Philip, were concerned, Samaritans weren't really Jewish, and they weren't really Gentiles either. So Samaritans were descendants of the northern tribe of Israel back in the 700 B.C., back in your Bible, 700 B.C. The northern tribe fell to the nation of Assyria around 700 700 B.C. And so the Assyrians, which was normal practice for for taking other countries, this is what they would do. They would take a bunch of people from northern tribes of Israel, in this case all the Jews, they would take up most of them and they would ship them off either back to their capital or they would distribute them in other lands that they had conquered of other people groups so that they could not be a people anymore. But they would leave some in the northern area there and they would bring in Assyrians or people of other tribes and other cultures into their area so that that area wouldn't just be a strictly Jewish area anymore. So you have all these Assyrians. Am I coming undone? But you're okay. It's okay. Somebody doesn't save this morning, Ken. It's your fault. <laughs> Isn't that how your Sunday school class went this morning? Isn't that what we decided? In, in, yeah, okay. We'll see that at the end of chapter 8, verse 44. All right, so Assyrians. Oh, that just sounds so much better. Thank you. Good job. Okay, I take it back. So... Assyrians, right? So they, they haul off a bunch of Jews and take them away, but they bring in other people groups into that area. So what do the Jews who are left in this area do? They marry the Canaanites, they marry the Assyrians, and they marry people of all these other people groups who are there. So their Jewish ethnic purity is lost in all that intermarrying and their kids and their kids and their kids and on it goes. And they also, therefore, have some theological compromises as well. And they're all here in this region known as Samaria now. Now, they, st- they still considered themselves people of God. They had their own version of the Pentateuch. They circumcised their sons. They had messianic expectations. They built an incredible temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the one in Jerusalem. So they weren't really Jewish as far as Philip and his upbringing was concerned. And they weren't really Gentiles either in the purest sense of the word. So the result of all this socially and ethnically is that there was quite a bit of prejudice that Jews held against Samaritans. As far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were half-breeds and they were heretics, and so they were excluded from the faith, which is the scenario into which Philip, who is a Greek-speaking Hellenist Jew, marches into in Samaria. Look what he says in verse 6 through 8. Look what happens. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. Unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now skip down to verse 12. And when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... Both men and women were baptized. So you see what's taking place. Given all the history and the understanding of how these cultures typically relate to each other, 
when Philip, as a Jew, goes into Samaria, instead of bringing a message of exclusion on the basis of ethnicity, instead of bringing a message of exclusion by way of ancestry, instead of bringing a message of exclusion by way of theology, Philip brings to the Samaritans a message of inclusion by the way of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, this is the flip side of the gospel. Don't miss this. In the gospel, there are no half-breeds. There are no ethnic rejects. There is no place for prejudice. The gospel turns racism into respect. It turns inequity into impartiality. It turns bias into service. It turns bigotry into fondness. It turns narrow-mindedness into big-heartedness. So if you were to step back and look at other religions in the world from their inception today, until today, one of the things that you would see is that those religions are essentially an invention of the culture of the people. Every culture needs people to stick together, so culture over time develops a religion of laws and morals and values to to keep its people together. And this bears itself out geographically because they're together geographically when they create it. As it grows, it actually stays close together geographically as a result. So if you're going to stick together as a culture and religion helps you do that, so does physical proximity. So this is still true. So if you look at the population centers of all the major religions except for Christianity, you would find that their population centers are still roughly exactly where their faith started. 90% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. In Europe, in North America, in South America, in China, in the Far East, they're only 4% Muslim in those areas. 80% of Buddhists live in East Asia where it started. 90% of Hindus Hindus live in India or South Asia. But from Acts chapter 8, we see a completely different story for the gospel. The gospel spreads with a small group of ethnic Jews, and it expands to the Greek-speaking Jews, and then it expands to the Samaritans, who, ethnically speaking, are a complete mixed bag, but have used religion to form their own culture. And as we'll see at the end of chapter 8, the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth in modern-day Egypt and Sudan through a black finance minister. And it just keeps going right now. Right now, 25% of Christians are in Central or South America or the Caribbean. 20% or more are in Africa. 15% are in Asia. 10% are in North America. More than 20% are in Europe. Did you hear the 10% are in North America part? We are the minority as far as the disparity of the spread out of the gospel. So as where world religions begin as a means of creating and protecting a single culture, Christianity is the poster child for diversity. It does not belong to one culture or this culture or that culture. Christianity is not an extension. It is not a function. It is not a product of any nation or people group. It's always been about inclusion, not exclusion. And when I say exclusion to inclusion, I don't just mean the people groups and the ethnic groups or about national identity. Look at verse 7. Did you notice this? For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame 
and were healed. How did Jewish law inform a person to deal with somebody who was unclean? Keep your distance. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Stay away. The Jewish laws of cleanliness would have kept Philip away from these people with these unclean spirits, but the good news of Jesus drew Philip toward them. The gospel turned Philip into a good Samaritan. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That's inclusion. You see, no one need be excluded from the kingdom of God on the basis of the identity or cleanliness laws or whatever. Everybody can be included on the basis of faith in Jesus. Now, that last statement, on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, that is the primary thing that's coming out of verses 9 through 25. Look at that text because there's there a flip here. There's a flip here from fascination to faith that takes place and almost takes place. Fascination to faith. Look at verse 9 through 12 first. A man named Simon previously practiced sorcery in that city, and he amazed the Samaritan people. And while claiming to be somebody great, they all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man, Simon, is called the great power of God. And they were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now I want you to notice in the text here, how the Samaritans were enthralled with, they were fascinated with Simon and his sorcery. But when they heard the very real and historical good news about Jesus, even with all the religious history and the baggage that that brings, they flipped over from fascination with Simon to faith in Jesus. They didn't give themselves to something that distracted them from their plight. They gave themselves to the person who dealt with their plight. But the passage highlights one exception, and that person is Simon. Look at verse 13. Now, verse 13 says, Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized. This is important because there's an element of verse 13 that's just reinforcing the idea that no one be excluded from the kingdom of God, not even sorcerers, okay? One division has a place in the gospel, all right? Some of you have Disney Plus subscription. I think that's awesome. Okay. Right. But in the verses that follow, Luke goes on to demonstrate that in Simon, you don't have a life of faith. You have a life of fascination with the things of the faith. It's very different. Look at verse 13. Simon followed Philip everywhere. He's a stalker. Of Philip. Why? He was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. Now, why would Simon be amazed with that? What does he do for a living? He creates these incredible experiences that people will admire him. So Simon is fascinated with all the sorcerer type things of the faith. And at this stage, he has only associated himself with something that he is fascinated with. And this has a very different result on him than real faith as the passage goes on to illustrate 
in verses 14 through 17. So in verses 14 through 17, Peter and John come down, you know, the big guys, you know, the two elders, you know, the Ken and Kevin come in and they come into town and they begin laying their hands on the Samaritans to be baptized and those individuals receive the Holy Spirit. But when Simon sees this, Simon, the stalking sorcerer, he sees this, he doesn't ask them to lay hands on him so that he will receive the Holy Spirit and live in faith. He says in verse 19, look at it, give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Huge difference. Not give me the Holy Spirit as a sign of me being right with God by basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Give me this power so that people will admire me the way that I admire you. So when we truly believe the gospel, our lives are about him, not us. When we're fascinated with the things of the gospel, when when we are fascinated with the things of the gospel, I should say, our lives become all about us. But Simon didn't want to live with the power that pointed to the glory of God. He wanted God's power for the glory of Simon, which is why Peter says what he says in verse 20. Look at it. Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and you are bound by wickedness. In studying this, that passage there, I, I, I really wasn't surprised at what Peter said. It's all very true and accurate. I was really surprised at how Peter said it. If you go back and look at Peter's life, it's not like he had an easy run of the faith with Jesus, right? He made a lot of mistakes, said a lot of stupid things, got into a lot of trouble. That didn't, so he said something very, very serious here. Now, part of that's culture, but I think it's at least enlightening to us because it shows us just how dangerous fascination with the faith is as a deterrent to real faith. It's like, do you really, we were having this conversation in Sunday school this morning upstairs. Like, how, can, how do you really know if someone's a, a Christian or not? Like, where's the, where's the fruit? Where's the, how, how do you really know? How can you have some sort of, of certainty? And the Simon is the kind of person who will go, well, yeah, he's a Christian. I mean, he was baptized. He's all about himself, as we see in the text. But, I mean, he's, he's around us all the time. He's, I mean, he's stalking Philip, for crying out loud. He's practically his disciple, isn't he? So you can see that the fascination of things with the faith can give yourself and others around you, the impression that everything is just fine. But in reality, you could not be farther from the truth. So the Samaritans went from a fascination of sorcery to faith in the gospel. And the sorcerer maintained a fascination with the things of the faith. Verse 24, Simon says, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me, Peter, which is not a statement of repentance. It's a statement of avoidance. He wanted to avoid the consequences of unbelief without having to submit to the requirements of belief. Well, in case you haven't seen the pattern, there's a flip. Persecution to multiplication, exclusion to inclusion, fascination to faith, and lastly, in verses 26 through 40, there is one of curiosity into conversion. So no sooner did Philip get back into Jerusalem 
Then did the Spirit now send him south, also downhill elevation, to a desert road in the region of Gaza. And on that road, the Spirit led him to approach a Ethiopian man on his way back home, who in the comfort of his chariot was reading of all things Isaiah 53. He's reading out loud because people read out loud back then. Nobody read silently. That was weird. It's weird if you don't read it out loud, okay? You read out loud back in this day. And he was reading Isaiah 53. He's wealthy. He's got a scroll, incredibly rare. He's got a chariot. He's wealthy. He's a finance minister in Ethiopia. And he's reading out loud. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shear, so does he not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from his earth. And in verse 34, the Ethiopian asked Philip, who's run up to the chariot in obedience to the Spirit, and he says, Philip, who is this prophet? He's curious. He's confused. He lacks clarity. He wants to know the right interpretation and application of the text. And so Philip gives him the right interpretation and application of the text. Philip did not say, well, man, you need to recreate the meaning of this text for yourself. You need to decide what it means for you. Nobody can tell you that. You got to figure it out for yourself. It's not what Philip says. He says, I'll tell you what it means. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the hermeneutical principle of this text. Jesus is the interpretive principle of this text. Jesus makes sense of everything in the Bible, and I will start with this text. And he tells him the good news of the gospel, and the result of that conversation is curiosity to conversion. And there's a baptism right there, boom, to symbolize what took place in that man's heart. So we've got persecution to multiplication. We've got exclusion to inclusion. We have fascination into faith, and we have curiosity into conversion. Do you see what Luke is doing in the story of chapter 8 in the book of Acts? He is showing us how the gospel turns things on its head, which we said several times in Sunday school today, which I think is awesome. But what? Like, how does this happen? How do these conversions take place? And there are two things, the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the good news. If you want to see these flips, these, this grasp this understanding and see the gospel at work, and you want to understand how this takes place, the first thing is that the role of the Holy Spirit, and the second thing is the preaching of the gospel. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 19, verse 29, verse 39, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Luke is demonstrating the Holy Spirit, the Lord is the one in charge making all of these things happen. And eight times through the entire chapter of the Gospel of Acts chapter 8, there is a mention of a phrase, they preach the good news. He preached the good news. He preached the good news. Do you understand the relationship between the Holy Spirit's leadership and the preaching of the good news? They're always together. They're always together. So how do these flips take place? The leadership of the Spirit through the preaching of the good news. It's interesting to me that there's no mention of the social climate except to say that it fueled the preaching of the good news and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There's no individual circumstances, no feelings coming into play. It's the facts, who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. 
all of which has implications for the social climate, all of which has huge implications for the person that we're sharing the gospel with, but the gospel is always facts. Whatever context we share it in, there are facts to communicate that are to be believed, and doing so leads to an entirely new life. So what? Well, we've had a lot of that, so let me just review, and then we'll close in prayer together. Here's what I'm taking away from this text today. Number one, there are no circumstances in which the gospel is powerless. I am not threatened by a pandemic. The church is not threatened by a pandemic. There are no circumstances in which the gospel is powerless. Number two, there are no types of people who do not belong, and the gospel compels us to love those that the world would naturally exclude. By definition, the church should be socially a very weird place. What is taking place? What is going on here is what somebody from the outside would say. I grew up loving the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. I'm, I'm still holding on to that wild bull. Okay. It's, it's, it's been a crazy ride, but I'm still holding on to it, Lord willing. And I mean, it's the only, it was America's team. It's the ones you grew up watching on television when you grew up in rural Mississippi. And uh, when Holly and I got married in 2000, I was born in 75, we got married in 2000, we moved to Dallas, and her employer gave her two tickets in 2001 to a Dallas Cowboys football game. And I remember being blown away at how incredibly diverse the audience was, in, uh, it, it, the crowd was in that game where the Cowboys were terrible, okay, that year. They were terrible in 2001. Look it up. But the people were there, and it was, we were in the minority as white 20-somethings. Fast forward 18, 19 years, and just a couple of years ago, I took my son, Jonathan, my 15-year-old, we went down to New Orleans for his birthday. We drove to New Orleans and went to a football game for the New Orleans Saints in which Drew Brees broke the passing yard record in that game, beating up on the Washington Redskins. And I have never seen tears flow. I have never seen black men hug white men like I saw when Drew Brees broke that record. There was such unity and such affection and such love across all kinds of demographics. You couldn't believe it. It was a better picture of church than I've ever seen in a church. The gospel means so much more than football. And that's what it should look like. Number three, we must be wary of fascinations of the things of faith as a substitute for faith itself. It's just simply not enough to be amazed or amused or intrigued. You have to believe. Don't just be associated. Be inundated. Okay? And we as a church, we have to be equipped to bring the gospel with clarity. Boy, isn't it incredible that Peter, I mean, excuse me, that Philip, I mean, he had it. He wasn't on the road to Emmaus where Jesus explained everything to those two guys. We don't even know who those guys were, right? Where everything, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them. Philip wasn't one of those guys, but in the teaching, in the life of the church, before persecution began, Philip, as a Hellenist Jew, all the lights began to come on, and he was equipped to share the gospel from the text, the facts of the gospel, which brought conversion and spread the gospel to, to Africa from there. So we need to be equipped. We need to be equipped as a church. Let's pray together.
Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, I hope that the gospel has been clear and abundantly clear to everyone in the room this morning, that we would abide by the truth of your word, that we would hear it, that your spirit would open our hearts to it, that we would obey, starting with belief and moving to a place of obedience, of sanctification, of being people who share the good news with clarity and conviction. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.